Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... One of the things that I constantly hear from my colleagues is it can be done, you just have to think a little bit differently. And I think that that's what we need to focus on, is thinking differently. We're reporting from MIPIM this week, the world's leading property fair, which is taking place in Cannes. While you'd be forgiven for thinking that it's solely an event for luxury developers and premium clients, many of the issues being discussed centre around wider themes such as building sustainably, creating better cities and delivering greener public spaces. So how are investors, developers, planners and local leaders coming together to shape the cities of the future? That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Welcome to The Urbanist. This week we're coming to you from the Palais du Festival, where just over 23,000 participants have descended into Cannes to take part in MIPIM, the world's leading trade fair for real estate and property. It's here that a lot of the deals, meetings and plans for the future of our cities take place. So we wanted to find out how developers, investors and mayors are working to deliver a better built environment for all. Something at the core of this is the debate over retrofitting, with ever-growing pressure for developers to choose a retrofit instead of building something from the ground up. But is retrofitting always the solution? Charles Begley is the chief executive of the London Property Alliance, a network representing developers, investors and, yes, real estate services in the British capital. They've just released a new report called Retrofit First, Not Retrofit Only, and I wanted to find out more about their findings and how to get the balance right. The industry categorically is supportive of Retrofit First on a number of levels, you know, environmental, sustainable, economic. If you can repurpose a building, it makes absolute sense. And increasingly, you know, you, you need to leverage debt and finance. You need to evidence your support for sustainability or driver sustainability and corporately. But there is definitely an issue where it's become a bit of a binary debate and not nuanced enough. So it, the politicisation of retrofit is eroding the ability in some areas to actually drive sustainable outcomes by actually retaining buildings uh, which really are obsolete and where the viability for investing the sums required just does not exist. Now in London we've had this campaign about a very particular building, the Marks and Spencer's building on Oxford Street that has become a a touch point of anger for many people who feel that the store group who owns it are, are wrong to want to take it down and redevelop it in a large way. It's gone back and forth between local government, it's been raised up to central government. When you look at an issue like that, even though there's perhaps rights and wrongs on each side and it's become so politicised, do you think that has made it even more complicated for the people who sit in your alliance to come forward with nuanced suggestions? Yes, and one of the reasons it's so complex is because there's a lack of guidance or of any national framework of how to approach the best approach for sustainability. And actually, you know, our research, which is called Retrofit First, Not Retrofit Only, actually, you know, looks at a number of case studies of different building types. And by far the best approach is a case-by-case basis. 
And in order to do that, local authorities and the industry need much deeper skills in order to understand the most sustainable form of development. And a key thing, really, when you redevelop a building or retrofit or redevelop, you really need to think not just about the greenhouse emissions from the actual construction phase, but actually the whole life carbon of that building. So that's its operational use of how that building operates and the emissions it generates by the occupiers over the next 50, 80, 100 years. And that should be a factor. So, for instance, if you retain an existing building where you're limited, very limited ability to actually implement sustainable measures because of its layout, its poor engineering you know, poor insulation, which, you know, then if that building has a, an additional lifespan of 30 years rather than the opportunity to redevelop something which actually is far more sustainable operationally, um, you're losing a, an opportunity for long term. The conversation with Charles left us wondering over the role investors and developers can play here. There's a lot of talking about delivering better buildings and being sustainable. But are these players coming on board as enthusiastically as it sounds? One person who knows the answer to this is Alice Charles, who's the director, Cities, Planning and Design at Arup. Her job involves working on city-related projects and also with the networks of mayors and international organisations. This is what she had to say. We're seeing a lot of commitments from investors and developers, and that's very positive, you know, we're hearing that they want to decarbonize their portfolios. Many are saying, I want to have a net zero portfolio by 2030. Equally, we're hearing a lot more about that they want to create healthy buildings as well. So the health agenda is also coming to the fore. But I think one of the things that is disappointing is that, you know, some of those large investors see their way of getting to net zero by offloading their assets. And what I mean by that is, they're looking through all of the real estate that they own across the world and they're identifying what they call stranded assets. So assets that perhaps have a very low energy rating and that they perceive in a future scenario will have a low value. And what they're doing right now is quite a few are actually selling those assets rather than you know, being responsible leaders and retrofitting those assets. And the reality is that that's not going to get us to net zero and it's not going to have any impact on climate change. But also, I think that they're often in the best position to actually act. They have the most resources, financial, indeed skills within their organisations to act. So I think it's disappointing that we're not seeing a greater focus on being responsible leaders. But equally, if they're thinking about offloading those assets and purchasing net zero assets to replace them, there's only so many net zero assets in the world. There's a very small percentage at the moment. So it's difficult to achieve that through sell and acquisition. So I think many of them need to start thinking differently about it in terms of, you often hear with some investors that we have a grey to green strategy. We buy buildings that they classify as grey, they seek to make them green, and they actually make a lot of money in doing so, but equally it's good for planet. I think we need to see a much greater focus from businesses and recognising that that's actually a business opportunity as well as being super important in responding to climate change. And I think we need to see more action in that regard. And what's your view on the retrofit debate? Because in some cities now, they're saying, you're not going to get permission to take down a building. You're going to have to turn it around, find a new use for it. What do you think? 
So we talk first about more the sort of efficiency agenda. And if we think about emissions in our buildings, some come from energy, but equally, some are embodied emissions. And those embodied emissions tend to be most prevalent at the point of construction. And a lot of those emissions would be in the superstructure. So the concrete, the steel, the materials, building materials that we put in particularly to the foundation and into the building. But later on through the life of the building, we also will encounter very significant embodied emissions. So for example, if you think about commercial real estate, we often have a clause within leases where there's you know a midterm renovation. And what you often see at that point is pretty much everything being thrown out and new furnishings, etc., being provided. And that results in significant emissions. And then you get to end of life. And often what you see is many developers will seek to demolish. It's easiest as they see it, but that also results in very high emissions. So that's the scenario that we're wanting to avoid. So because of that, we're starting to see policy head in the direction that we probably will see demolitions actually banned in many cities. I take the point that it's not easy to adapt buildings, but it's often because we're lacking the knowledge and know-how. And I think you know, one of the things that I constantly hear from my colleagues in Arab is, it can be done, you just have to think a little bit differently. And I think that that's what we need to focus on, is thinking differently. We need to equally do a lot more research and thinking about, well, how can we use less concrete, less steel in the superstructure if we're building a building? How can we use alternative materials at scale, such as timber, which you know we are seeing in many buildings that we're building in various parts of the world? But equally, when we're retrofitting a building, how can we start to use materials that in another location? So for example, I was in a building in Amsterdam not so long ago, and I walked in and, and the facade had been completely reused as flooring. So it's thinking creatively about how we can use components of the building in a different way, yet meeting the requirements that we need to meet. A nation that has a unique opportunity to build from the ground up, though, is Egypt. The country is building some 20 new cities in the coming decade, including a new administrative capital. But is it possible to really deliver this in a sustainable way? Khaled Abbas is the CEO of the Administrative Capital for Urban Development. And we caught up to find out what phase the project is currently at. It's not only Cairo. We are facing a big challenge in Egypt. We have increasing population, 2.5%, which is almost 2.5 million. We have a strategic plan for 2052. This strategic plan saying that in best scenarios will go to be 160 million. In worst scenario, if you continue like this, will be 185 million. So we put a plan, a business plan, that uh, where are those going to live? We have to find a way. So that's why it's not only the new capital. We have another 14 new cities all around Egypt, from the south to the north. The new capital is one of those cities. Well, look at Cairo. It's now very crowded. It cannot be accommodate any other uh, numbers. So we should have a new capital. But the business, we get the business out of from the old city to the new one. And to upgrade the old one, it's not a matter to leave it, like to, to upgrade it, to be back as a cultural city, as a tourism city. And as you mentioned, Egypt isn't only building this city, it's building up to 20 new cities. Yes. As you build these, I think the trouble for many other countries have found when they've built new cities is it's possible to build the infrastructure and to put up the houses and the office buildings, but making community is a little bit more difficult. How will you go about making these places that are actually nice places to live, You know, that have the amenities and the, the social life that I imagine everybody, especially in, in a 
big country like Egypt would expect from their cities? If you're talking about the new capital, we are, as I said at the beginning, we have the master plan with all the facilities. It's not a matter of buildings or housing. You have to first to create the jobs, to have to create the places for the services, the education, health, entertainment, commercial, everything like this. So the city will be one fabric. And this is what happened in the new capital. Now all the services are ready now there. You have the shops, you have the education, you have the schools, you have the universities. It's working now already. So the people can move. And as I said, the new capital is only 50 kilometers from the old city. So it's easy to move. When we start to think about the new capital, we study all the other countries who have a new capitals, like Brazil, like Nigeria, like Kazakhstan. The problem there was they built a new capital far away from the old one, almost 1,000 kilometers. In Brazil, it's 400 to 500 kilometers. The people refused to move. It was not successful as if this. And this we learned one from this. That, that's why when we study our new capital, we make it like it's almost attached to the new one. It's uh, to be like uh, developed in the same area. So this will make the people move because you know, with our new roads and everything like this, 50 kilometers is nothing. One of the many cities in focus here at MIPIM is the Polish capital, Warsaw. The city is here to attract investment. And as we found out from his deputy mayor, Michal Ozluski, the past few months have forced the city to think on its feet. Poland is actually a unique country. The difference between capital city and the second league city, like Poznań, Wrocław, uh, many others, it's not so big as in every other European country. If you compare Poland, for example, to Spain, to France, to uh, Great Britain, you always have one big capital city who is actually sucking every capital into one market like Madrid, Paris, uh, London, and then the league of the second cities is very weak. In Poland, uh, we are also growing, and Warsaw is also profiting from the situation that second league cities is very strong, which means that even if we, for example, are too expensive to locate here in Warsaw several branches of the industry, this industry is locating in Gdynia, in Gdańsk, in Poznań, in Wrocław, in Katowice, and we as a capital city is profiting from the situation because usually the headquarters of this company are here in Warsaw. So actually this collaboration between us or the network that we created uh, very naturally in Poland is making us very strong because deciding to invest in Poland, deciding to invest in, in Warsaw, you can relocate your resources in different cities based on, of course, also on, on very high quality human resources. So you're collaborating uh, with all the other yeah, cities yeah, here. Yeah. It's a, it's and a the team. last thing, which is very important, is just to understand geopolitics. We suffered as a country because of geopolitics, but also we are profiting from geopolitics. We suffered because we were always uh, on the march of the armies from Russia to West and from German to East. <laughs> it's, uh, so usually they demolish our country because of some of the ambitions uh, in the past. But we are profiting from the situation that we are actually the biggest market and also is actually the biggest economy, local economy market on the eastern part of the Europe. And even the situation with the war making us stronger because now because of the war, because of the aggression, many of investors understood that Poland is still the most stable part of this market in this area. Many companies uh, moved the human resources from Ukraine, from Belarus uh, because of the aggression from Russia too, to Poland because of the aggression of the Russian Federation last year. So even uh, such situation which might be treated as a treat for our economy, it's uh, making us stronger because still it's building economy towards growing bigger and bigger. Also is now 2.1 million of uh, inhabitants. 
we had such analyzers two years ago that we will grow by 250,000 of the new inhabitants in 25 years. And then within one month last year, we grew by 250 of the refugees from the Ukraine who are actually now living in Warsaw. And being very frank, thanks to those people, we are also filling the gaps that we have on the labor market because mostly they have the skills that are actually needed on the markets. Unemployment rates of Warsaw, which is like 1.5, 1.7, is still showing that uh, we still need new resources for growing. The issue of being a good host to refugees and migrants made us think about this more social aspect of city living. While it's all well and good that new buildings are built in green, sustainable ways, these efforts will amount to very little if the community is not involved into the project. This is at the core of Socius, a British mixed-use developer working to deliver projects that have a positive impact in their communities. And I asked its director, Olaide Obo, to explain her approach to business. Socius was set up as a social impact developer with a real focus on improving the communities that we work in, importantly the people and their life chances. We don't believe that buildings regenerate, actually we've got to create the right infrastructure and deliver the right infrastructure in those places to make sure that we create proper social impact. And what does that look like? You know, We go in and we work with local communities to understand what ambitions, aspirations, what issues are, and we use development as a vehicle to address those issues. So, for example, places like Cambridge. Cambridge is a really unequal community. It's got lots and lots of rich people and actually not enough facilities to support the people who are a bit deprived. So what are we doing there? We're creating... We've dedicated half of our scheme to a public park, and that's about giving people infrastructure, real high-quality public space for people to dwell, to enjoy themselves in. But importantly, we've also created community growing beds in that space, so people can grow their own food, reduces the distance from farm to plate, so they can actually cook the food, and it can have much more sustainable food, cheaper and better for local people, healthier for local people. That's just a really small example. That's the kind of decisions we make to deliver real impact to local people. Take me one step back, though. You're doing all this work, but when you initially speak to the council, I presume, in Cambridge, did they say to you, look, we have some problems here that we're asking developers to solve before they win any contract or are allowed to develop a site? Or are you going to them and pushing them and saying, look, it's great that you you want to build some new housing, but have you thought about all these things? We are definitely the instigator. We are going in and pushing for a much more rounded decision to be made If we're bidding on a scheme, we don't think our bid should just be judged on the price or just be judged on the fact that we can build it. We think it should be judged on the fact that we can make proper impact in that area. So we go in and have those conversations early on with council leaders, with staff in the council, and ask, actually, what are the challenges you face in your city? What are the issues? Not just about the physical buildings, actually. Is it about health inequality? Is it the fact that you've got young people who are out of work? How can we use a development as a vehicle to make change rather than you know, just ignoring that? We don't see our role as just the people to provide all the solutions, but we can definitely enable and bring people together to address those problems. And how do you do that? Does it mean that within your company you go beyond the, the usual people who can go around and raise money, speak to institutions who might want to back a project? Are you bringing in also the, the teams that will do the social mapping, that will go out and investigate what the needs are in a community? Absolutely. We, we will go in and ask those questions early on. So we bring in a team of people who will go into local communities, ask the questions and ask the charities, the volunteer organisations, the community groups, the residence groups, and ask those questions and really get a firm understanding of what the challenges are. 
But importantly, we see ourselves as a convener. Our professional team usually is about 300 people strong. If every single organisation did something, the power that that can deliver is enormous. So if I had a, an architect's practice and I said to the architect's practice, I want you to deliver more in your communities. And that could be going into a local school for an hour every month and talking to young people about careers in architecture or engineering or design, whatever it is. Or I could say to them, actually, I want you to employ a local person, paid employment, maybe it's just for the summer, for them to have some work experience. Now, imagine if 50 organisations did a little bit every time. That creates enormous potential. So that's just our professional team. Now we look into the wider community and all the community organisations are all trying to do things on their own. And actually the power of coming together means that we can have much more impact. So that's how we do it. So would you not bid, for example, if someone said, oh, look, there's a a new warehousing scheme that needs to go up, it's going to have little social impact. Would you avoid those kinds of projects? You're looking for where you can add meaning. Well, we'd push back and say, there's no way you can't have social impact. You can't tell me that even if you're putting up a warehouse that's, you know, a shed and you're just going to plunk it on there, that's going to deliver jobs. Look at the types of jobs it's going to deliver. Can those jobs go to people who've been out of work for a long time and need some training to help them get those jobs? Can that, those jobs go to people who have maybe disabilities and have been left out of the workforce? I would question how you can not deliver an associate, but I think it's physically impossible to not do that. So we would go in and would challenge that saying that said, oh, there'll be no social impact. We absolutely don't. We disagree. On the second day of the fair, we had a chance to catch up with the mayor of Portugal's second city, Porto's Rui Moreira. We've checked in with him over the years before here on The Urbanist, but we couldn't resist finding out more about an ambitious plan to finally deliver high-speed rail to the country and connect the city to neighbouring Spain. As he explained, this could be a game-changer for his city's economy and propel it to become one of the biggest hubs in the north of the Iberian Peninsula. The Portuguese government has finally admitted that the existing uh, railway line between Lisbon and Porto is unable to serve its purpose. The use of the line by short-haul trains, also by cargo trains at night, makes it impossible. So they decided basically to build a second line, a parallel line. And this parallel line will enable the connection between Porto and Lisbon, which is today 2 hours and 45 minutes to be reduced to one hour and a quarter. Of course, this will make railways much more competitive, but the idea is also that it should not stop in Porto. It should continue via the Oporto airport through Braga, which is the main hub north of Portugal, especially in the industrial side, and then to Vigo and the north of Spain in general, Galicia. So it could go up to La Coruña. If this is realized as we expect, and there are negotiations between the Portuguese government and the Spanish government, what will be the impact? First of all, the connection between Porto and Lisbon, which today is based very much on um, private transport. About 60% of the connection is made by car. It will certainly change to trains, and that will have an, a very important impact, environmental, but also cost-wise. Secondly, we will have our airport as a more important hub because it will increase the hinterland of our airport because being nearer to Lisbon and nearer to Vigo, it will make it much more competitive and it will enable us to use the very good network that the Spaniards have since we will be eventually 40 minutes or maybe 35 minutes from Vigo. One of the things that Porto has faced an interesting way of navigating is the need for greater housing for ordinary people, for key workers, for public housing. 
a time when both Porto and Lisbon saw such an influx of foreign capital wanting to buy buildings and do investments. You are here potentially looking for even more money to come into Portugal. How are you balancing this these days about the desire to grow and make nice apartment buildings for the new people who might want to come into these industries, but also balancing the needs of the people who have been there for generations? We have a higher demand and we have two options. Either we kill demand or we increase the supply. I'm in favor of increasing the supply. And of course, the supply has to be across the board. And what we are aiming here very much, and we have been having meetings with people, is looking at investors who want to build affordable housing. So what we are offering is build to rent, a system that the Brits know very well, with leases, long leases. So the vacant areas in the city, which we can dispose of, to investors for leases up to 90 years or 99 years. And it will allow them then to build on our land. But of course, then we will have the benefit of telling them that at least a sizable part of it will have to be affordable housing. So that's a sort of good compromise we think is viable. Another thing we are doing at the moment is because of the very high revenues we are having on city taxes, we are giving it back to citizens. What we have is a little bit like San Francisco had some years ago, these housing vouchers, residential vouchers for our younger people who can actually hire houses and the town hall is paying a part of it. Actually, we have one program which is a success and we heard today, I was speaking with foreign investors, they want to join us, is they built the houses, they put the houses on the market to rent, the rent is paid by the city hall. So the city hall is the guarantor of the rent. And then we rent it back, we sublet it actually to young people. And for a limited period of time for five years, they don't pay the full rent, so we pay the rent. So it's actually the sort of carrot and stick situation and also the situation of redistributing. How do we redistribute the revenues we have with housing? If we don't allow any new housing, we won't have these revenues, we won't be able to redistribute. You are here at MEPIM. What's your job here at MEPIM? What, what do you hope to achieve over the, the time you're here? Well, first of all, we are having a lot of contacts with other cities regarding climate change. I had already several meetings with that to define strategies. How can we mitigate climate change impacts on cities? And we are doing things together also in terms of European funds, which we want to attract. So that's, let's say, the purely political area the political field which we want to attract. Another thing is exactly to speak with investors and to tell them that, look, if you want to invest in our city, we are still welcome. In many cities, they are not welcome. But okay, there is a catch. The catch is you have to uh, be able to give us a part of your houses. We don't want them to pass property onto us. That's a method that has been tried by some cities. It's not very good. No, what we want is that they will have to put these houses on affordable uh, housing uh, schemes with the advantage that they can use our land instead of buying land. So that's the sort of thing we have to explain them. But of course, as you know, these capital markets at the moment are very suspicious about housing uh, projects and about housing policies in Europe. Not only in Portugal, where the government announced a number of measures which might jeopardize this sort of trust, but even countries like Poland, uh, which uh, just announced a law which is actually throwing away the capacity to attract investment. To give you a broad figure, Portugal is a country where only 2% of housing is state-owned. You can't solve a problem if you only have 2% of the problem. 
The other 98% is private, so we really have to gather the private investors and to tell them we want you to continue helping us solve the problem, which is the high cost. And I'm at ease to say that because Porto has 13% social housing, 6.5% of percentage of the country. So we have done our job, but we still need more houses, also because the city is so attractive for nomads. We are attracting a number of IT companies companies that are employing 2,000 engineers from one day to the other. We need houses for these people and the city can't build them, we just don't have the funds. Now, we've been talking about building green and how that's been at the centre stage here at MIPIM, but if there's one organisation that knows exactly how to deliver that, it's the World Green Building Council. This global NGO is present in over 77 countries and has been working to decarbonise real estate and bring sustainability front and centre as a way of delivering better infrastructure. They've partnered with MIPIM this year to create the Road to Zero stage and area, delivering a series of talks and events on climate change. Here's their CEO, Christina Gamboa. We are at that tipping point conversation where it's becoming much more mainstream in the decision-making process. Definitely from the big engineering and architecture firms that are committed in this journey, but also from asset managers and decision holders on investments, because many stakeholders around them are asking them for greater transparency and disclosure, and this movement towards quality investments that are actually delivering better returns and are future-proofed is totally aligned with decarbonization and sustainability. Now, you hinted at the beginning of this conversation that it's about more than just climate change. It's about resilience, it's about people's life chances and delivering equity in our cities. Are you keen that you're not just seen as a headmistress going around telling people off for not doing the right thing, that you want to make sure these conversations are much richer for them than that? Oh yes, totally. And I don't feel alone, let's say, in the quest towards <laughs> the ambition and the sustainability. There's this great collaboration that is happening in the wider, let's say, international agenda space for a sector that can be quite local, right? But we've seen how the sector has come up as a priority in the UN COP space, where, for example, last year, the high-level climate champions from the UN put out a paper that we helped out around resiliency in cities. We did it with C40. And then we just showed what is actually happening today. So we're not just saying, here's what you need to do. We're actually inviting a conversation on people that are not afraid of the knowledge investment they have to put in. And we're addressing that gap, making it sure that the solutions that are available today are easily within grasp for people to address pressing problems. And in a world where you could make this a vision of there's too many risks, I'm going to concentrate on a few things, actually we're now invited on a more holistic, polycentric view. And when you ask me about resilience, it's that. Because it means climate change impacts are here and they are happening to people right now. As humans, we need a sense of security. We are vulnerable and people are facing these risks. And if the built environment is not addressing them in improving their portfolios, they're just going to be with a double materiality along the investment cycle. So there are guidelines, but there's case studies of people taking action. And it's just learn, adopt, and scale. And the learn piece is sometimes the key piece. The scaling, cities that are vulnerable are taking action, and then we can just take the lessons to make them locally appropriate. And finally, staying with the theme of climate change, let's go to the Nordics. 
The Finnish city of Turku has been hard at work to deliver ambitious climate goals. Almost 800 years old, this is the oldest city in the nation. But that doesn't mean it's lagging behind. Turku is on track to reach net zero by 2029, if not sooner. Niko Kienerainen is the Director of Business and Economic Development and he told us how they're doing it. We have actually reduced our carbon monoxide from 1990 level already by 55%. So we have done our energy system solutions, so they are already in a sustainable way. Actually, what we are now lacking towards 2029 has to do more about traffic. And of course, there we are looking for different new solutions with the companies. Tram system will be one of those key issues now in the city of Turku. And when you say the tram issue, you're, you're spending big on putting in new trams? Yes, the first one actually. We ended our tram system in the 1970s and now we are looking into the new one. And that's going to be a really big kind of a growth issue for the whole city and the city center and the whole region in the future. How the, also the property markets in the city will develop in the new tram line. Now, the even bigger ambition is by the 2030s, you claim you're going to be carbon negative. So, again, is this because you're putting in means of generating power within the city? Finland has many advantages in the world, but sunshine isn't one of them. So I'm not sure you're depending on solar power. How are you putting in all of these processes to generate all of your own energy? Of course, we have forests and we have the wind power, which is a big issue. Also, when talking about different hydrogen solutions, so we have in our archipelago a lot of areas where wind power can be used. And then, of course, you can make green hydrogen, you can even make green ammonium and so on. So there is different solutions how you can actually provide these positive uh, energy solutions to the whole world. And these are the basic means. We will be actually also positive because... The solutions we make, we actually achieve the neutrality, I think, even quicker than 2029. And will you be one of the first cities in the Nordic region to get there? Yeah, and the whole world, actually. So our solutions are, are one of the best in the world. And tell me, the other thing that you're doing is a lot of cultural projects. I think rather ambitiously said in a press release I read about you that you've got the cultural life of equivalent of Paris, but we'll, yeah. we'll, I'll yeah. test you on that. Yeah. But you're building a new museum, a new yeah. house of music. Yeah. Is this also a little bit of like the positive payback to make sure the citizens don't feel that they're just being roughed up all the time to do good that you're saying actually this is a cool place to be yeah we have a saying called the well-being from culture so it was all already stated in the 2011 when we were the culture capital of europe and so the cultural meaning in inside the city of turku is for the citizens is for the tourists so on so a lot of people are involved And we are building not only so kind of a music halls, the high-end culture, we are building also the house of art, so different kind of small artists are involved. Then we are building also the arena where different kind of rock music but also sports are involved. So different kind of culture is alongside. We have the longest festival, ongoing rock festival in the whole whole Europe called the Ruiz Rock 
already from the 1960s, for example. So all year round you get different kind of cultural activities in the city. Do you go to the rock festival? Yeah, I do. Well, as you can see, it was an amazing few days to be at Mipim. And being in the sunshine of Cannes didn't hurt either. And it's amazing to see the power and influence that the people have here at Mipim. Not all of them are perhaps up to speed in the way that we need them to be. And as you heard, the discussion about people slightly cheating their carbon plans by offloading assets that don't look very good on their balance sheets isn't really a way ahead. But on the positive side, we met so many people who are really embracing the need to deliver change and understand that there will be some stumbling points along the way that they'll need to navigate. So I think we left MIPIM convinced that potentially there are ideas coalescing here that will do us all some favours in the future. I think what was also positive is that we met so many city leaders who are racing ahead, not waiting to be told what to be done by central government, and who are speaking to developers and investors and making sure that they deliver genuine partnerships for genuine change. Well, that's all for this week's special episode of The Urbanist coming from MIPIM. You can hear the event live in the background. Well, for more from the world of urbanism, subscribe to the podcast so you get new episodes every week. Today's show, well, it was produced by Colin Rabello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Lucas Heaven with Every City Has a Rhythm. Thank you for listening, city lovers. We are the people. And we live and breathe together in the city Every city has a rhythm, has its life and its beginning It's like a heartbeat But the rank gets higher and higher And I hope you don't expire from the pressure It's like my neighbor Charlie says you gotta